This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 17. Coming up on the show, we've got the astral weapons of theosophy, the secret power of music, and the psychic phallus of eternal youth. I'm Benjamin Grundy, joining me is Aaron Wright. That last one is from the archives of Nandor Fodor, and I didn't expect that one at all. Or Nandor Fodor. Yeah, well, I... From the world's biggest Nandor Fodor fan, who won't stop talking about Nandor (laughs) bloody Fodor. He's my new favourite psychical researcher. I'm really intrigued by his work, actually. And there's that new movie that's coming out very soon that describes his interactions with Jeff, the talking mongoose. Um, But with his book, The Haunted Mind, I went through some of his... I wanted to understand how he approached the paranormal and psychical research. And this guy has really been attacked from both sides. He's been attacked from really cynical skeptics and and scientifically minded folk all the way down to psychical societies and research groups because he's called out a lot of frauds. And I think that's really fantastic because if you're going to call out frauds, I mean, you've got to call it when you see it. If you're just going to let it pass and then just say, well, everything is real, no one's going to take you seriously. So in his research, he's actually had some experiences that kind of like we know of a lot of these people led him down this path, but he's approached it from an entirely different angle. He's going from this psychoanalytical standpoint, and I don't know if that necessarily works, but regardless, it does provide some very fascinating stories. Like psychic phalluses. Yes, very. What, that are Phalli. That phalli that are materialized <laughs> during a seance. I threw you some hot stories, some hot chaff today. <laughs> I yeah, had some uh, I had some really hot chaff stories, which I had to set aside uh, and pass on to you. <laughs> well, it ties in perfectly with the story of the fellas. Yes. Yeah. Perfectly. So I, I was doing something a little bit broader, something a little bit uh, more cerebral. I went into this 1984 work from uh, an author named David Tame, and it's The Secret Power of Music, The Transformation of Self and Society Through Musical Energy. And when you think of the relationship between civilization and music, most of us would assume that the music of the era is driven by civilization. So the changes in civilization precede evolutions in music. So you mean like a cultural kind of responses? Yeah, just the the way our civilization, the way society changes, the music changes with it. Well, Tame argues that it's actually the opposite. The reality is the opposite. He argues... Well, that music drives civilization. Yes. The music of the civilization drives the changes in civilization. That changes in society are preceded by changes in music. Oh, that that's music is the central core to 
everything we are. And he goes into this really broad idea of the uh, this universal sound, the om, this kind of cosmic order that that stems through a particular tone. He talks about ancient societies trying to seek out this specific frequency, this yep. tone, as if it's like a, a, a holy grail of sorts, and how ancient societies essentially organized their civilization around the idea of this central cosmic order and laid it out in in like a musical way. Interesting. So music became almost, uh, and he goes into the ancient Chinese organization of this, music became the central tenet to the organization of society to the point where seeking out this heavenly tone became like a, a holy grail for each uh, new dynasty. For each new emperor, it would be like a quest, like a hero would be sent on a quest to find some kind of uh, mystical bamboo pipe that had the right resonance. And once you had the measurement of the right resonance, you could organize your society, your entire civilization around its structure. So what, it's some type of weird harmonic resonance concept? Well, I was, my, my mind was blown by this research. But when I went to look at the reviews, because it's an older book, it's from 1984, mm. all the reviews are like, this guy doesn't like jazz. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously missing the point of his I, research. Literally everything is, he's too hard on jazz. And I just thought, what are so? you? That's got nothing to do with anything yeah. I read. Like, yeah, he's pretty hard on jazz. But uh, it's just the scope of what he's discussing. Again, going back to this idea that the music drives the civilization. Geez, we're in trouble then if that's what's going on today. And and hopefully, well, if we have time, I'll take you through some of the 20th century music and how it seems to have devolved from what we had before. <laughs> and I've got some musical examples, including a guy who uh, his entire idea of an orchestra was to just get like industrial things on stage. So he had like a bunch of hammers, mallets, pianos with bits of like metal in them, um, you know, anvils and things like that. And then he even had like a, a prop propeller was one of his instruments. And so he would turn it on and be and then gong, 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 gong. So it's not a pleasant sound. I'd it's just the most horrific thing you've ever heard, right? And this was in, I think, the 1930s. And then uh, after a while, he'd performed this orchestra a few times. And then the jet engine was invented, I think sometime in the 1940s or 50s. And he wanted to update no. his sound. No. <laughs> so he literally had a jet engine <laughs> on stage as part of his orchestra. How big was it? Wouldn't that deafen the audience? Like a full-on jet engine, probably like 130 decibels or something. So halfway through all this banging and clanging, <laughs> he'd turn on this... <laughs> <laughs> this jet engine spitting out hot fury towards the audience and they're meant to sit there like this is some oh, kind oh, of oh. evolution in sound. But no. of course, uh, according to Tame, this is just driving more, uh, I guess, devolution of society. You know, I think some people can execute it quite well, though. I know Imogen Heap, for example, I went to a couple of her concerts, and she brings in the most unusual of instruments. She gets, like, vases of water and then puts metal around the outside and then uses a violin bow. And, like, it's it's really well done. Like she's And it sounds like 
decent music. So all I think of, some people can execute it well. All of that traces back to voodoo jazz <laughs> <laughs> okay. and occult rituals in Africa, apparently, which okay. we'll get to later right. on in the show. We'll get into that in a moment. In fact, uh, I'm going to go into Nandor Fodor's book, but before we do, I, I want to mention that later in the show, I'm going to go into Stepping to the Drummer. This is the hot chaff book that you threw at me, Ben. This is The Extraordinary Tales of a Psychic Man. It's by Paul Bura. And it's funny that you should mention the idea of sound and, you know, the importance of, I don't know how it, you know, directs society and and what role it plays, because I wasn't even going to go into it in great detail, but he does describe this scene where ultimately he's trying to connect with a bunch of Davic entities, earth entities, if you will. Yeah, like guardians, like Davis, these sorts of things. And what he does is through his experiences, which I'll explain later, he uh, does like ohms, like he tries to seek this kind of frequency. He describes dousing for a certain sound. And what he will do is he will douse for this certain sound. And once he's decided on what the sound is, then he can use it in these, I guess, rituals that he performs to try and contact the guardian spirits. And some of these guardian spirits are responsible essentially for crop circles. So this guy, Paul Bura, the book Stepping to the Drummer, it's basically his life story, right? Like he, yeah, ta- he talks about growing up in England. His mum and dad had a fish and chip shot. He, he lived uh, near Kent, like on the, on the seaside. That's right, yep. And uh, it kind of gets interesting because he catches polio, doesn't he, when he's really young? Yeah, he does. Very early on in this book, he describes you know, two things that happen to him. One is very physical and one is very psychical. And it doesn't seem like it's that compelling of an experience, but for him it was. Like he was only seven years old. He was very young. He's riding his bike down this little lane beside the pub. Uh, and I think this pub must have been somehow connected to the the fish and chip shop that his parents ran. But as he's riding down... He remembers thinking that all of this is for me. And he says, the birds formed an avenue of sound that was directly, directed directly to him. That's right. Like kind of setting up this scene for the, what the rest of his life is, is going to be. And he said, this sound was so beautiful that I got off my bike, I thrust it against the grassy bank and sank down into the grass, the smell of which was the best anesthetic I knew. So it was like... It's an ecstatic experience. Yeah, it was ecstatic, right? And going back to to Fodor, in fact, Fodor realized this very, very early on in his research when he was, you know, having patients come in and, you know, approaching their psychical experiences from, you know, a a psychological uh, standpoint. He noticed that a lot of people have the manifestations of spirits, entities, interactions with this type of phenomena in two states. One is trance state, which we, we know of, you know, hypnotic kind of states, trance states, transcendental states. And the other is in states of pain and ecstasy, you know, kind okay. of on this thing. So when people are in these, these two essential states, uh, this is when they have interactions with these things. And, you know, going back to Bura, he says that after I'd had this experience, I don't know how long I lay there, but I felt like something magical, something mystical, something wonderful had happened to me. It was like the collection of everything, but he couldn't tell anyone. He didn't know how to tell anyone. He just realized that this was his first spiritual experience. But the second experience, this was the the physical experience that he had, was that he caught polio from a stagnant pool in his grandmother's front garden. Does that mean he was drinking it? Well, possibly. I mean, I, I swimming would, in it, drinking I would, it. He was probably swimming. I think it does follow a, a fecal oral route. So yeah, he's obviously gotten some water in his mouth and unfortunately he's contracted polio and his grandparents were beside themselves. Like they were never able to forgive them. And oddly enough though, for being a young boy, you know, when he heard that he might die from, from polio, 
Um, he could see his parents, his mother, her hair turned white overnight. His father just kind of collapsed into this depressed soul. Uh, but for him, he was like, oh, this is actually kind of exciting because it taught him patience. He said it became a, an important feature of his life because it made him sit down for once and observe reality around him to understand what was really going on. Well, he had no choice. He was just stuck in hospital. Yeah, look, he, he I actually, move. from the stories of polio that I've heard over the years, he's actually incredibly lucky for, for what happened to him. I mean, some people that contracted polio ended up in an iron lung, which means they were paralyzed from the neck down to the point where the, the diaphragm muscle wouldn't even move. So they had to be in a, you know, a pressurized environment to a variable pressure environment to be able to breathe. And some people have stayed in these iron lungs for decades. You know, I think 40, 50 years in some circumstances. So for him, still a very horrible disease, and it's so sad for a young child to, to get it. But he actually took quite well to his uh, calipers and spinal jacket, and he was able to, to move around. And as a result of this, it seemingly set his life on a certain path, and he got into these odd seven-year cycles. And this is very much what a lot of the book focuses on. It's like every seven years, there's something that seemingly happens in his life. And it has this element of spiritualism or psychical phenomena that's that's attached to it. Um, But look, he wasn't sure as to what really was going on until he started hanging out at some spiritual churches, you know, because obviously he's had this kind of life um, where he's tried to connect from a psychical standpoint with other people. And his parents would take him to like faith healers and these sorts of things. And one faith healer he was taken to when he was 12 years old was Harry Edwards. And Harry Edwards would get up and do things that appeared to be quite miraculous, but it could be a case of wishful thinking. Is there anyone in the audience that can't see properly? Yeah. And all these hands would, hands go, would up, go up. And he'd w- drag someone to the stage yeah. and lay his hands on them. Exactly. And they'd be like, oh, I can see. Well, I, I think for a lot of these sorts of things, it's a really good example of the energy of a large group of people. You know, and you're right. Uh, people would b- suddenly be able to see. Uh, there was one time where he's like, does anyone have rheumatism or rheumatoid arthritis? and people would put their their (laughs) jagged hands up because they've got arthritis. And there was this one scene that he saw where uh, this woman with these really gnarled hands that obviously had been ravaged by rheumatoid arthritis, he starts to kind of just work the knuckle and he pulls the fingers out and he pulls them straight. Like somehow these badly stiffened fingers became straight after being gently rotated. She's like, I'm healed, I'm healed. And then he says something along the lines of, does anyone have spinal problems or back problems? Now, of course he does because he's had, this is Paul, he's had polio and his spine is, you know, quite damaged from this as a result of of the polio. And he gets up onto the stage and he's told to remove his spinal brace. So off comes the, the jacket and the spinal brace and he starts, this is Harry, this faith healer, starts doing things to his back. And He's like rubbing the spine with his f- yeah, thumb and finger. thumb and forefinger, up and down, pulling against the spine. He says, it is now straight. And the crowd roars and... You know, he's like, now you'll get up and walk without the aid of support. And again, the crowd goes even more wild. And he walks. He walks. It's a miracle. But Paul points out, is like, little did Harry know that I actually could walk without the jacket <laughs> yeah, anyway. He it could was already like kind walk. of a... It was the support. And the crowd's going bananas. They're going bananas. They're going wild. You know, but he's like, look, this is fine for me. Like, for whatever reason, it just felt like it was good. It was like the energy that was going through. Well, he thought that his spine had been straightened. He actually thought the the guy had, you know, obviously he knew he could walk, but he thought the guy had straightened his spine. Yeah, but when he gets home, he knows that it's not. In fact, because he says to his father, he's like, is it straight? 
you know, Dad, is it straight? And his father's like, yes, it's absolutely straight. It's straight. And then he kind of backs out of the room like that Homer Simpson gift going through the, the bushes. And uh, he's like, I know that it's not straight. Like, I know this now. And he says, upon reflection, somehow I knew karmically that it wasn't possible for me to be healed. Improved, yes, but not completely healed. And this is something that comes up at a few points in the book. It seems to suggest that there's some karmic reason for why he contracted polio mm. and for why he goes through these experiences. And it is like, in a way, um, I'm not saying it, it's karma, but you can see from the way that he describes his life story that it, obviously having this illness, as detrimental as it appears to be, it seems to have set him on a certain path in life that has fulfilled him. Like he seems to have gotten fulfillment from this um, spiritual side of life that he was essentially, you know, pushed into. So, he says that, look, you know, you, you need to accept that eternity is here. You know, it's always here. You need to accept that life just doesn't end here. There's an eternal now. And this is why we have karma. If you'd accept this, you're going to be a lot happier. So when he was 14, so this is the second, you know, section of, of seven-year lots. He goes in for major back surgery with a doctor or a Mr. Strange. So this is his doctor. And he says, don't worry, there's nothing strange about this man. Um, he has a spinal fusion, which, you know, tries to take, you know, part of his spine from his hip to straighten his back. And he has multiple operations to kind of straighten out his back. And it does pretty well, but it's not, it's not perfect. But the operation results in the worst physical pain that he has ever experienced. It's so bad that he nearly blacks out from the agony. So going back to Nandor Fodor, mm. this is one of those states that allows you seemingly more to be more likely to connect with psychic phenomena and the entities that are associated with it. And after six months recovering in hospital, uh, he's now 15, he comes home and he realizes that there's ethereal things that seem to be stirring within him and beckoning to him. But what, he doesn't know. And this is where we skip forward to his connection to this uh, psychical church. So he's 16, he's at a rehabilitation unit in Croydon. Uh, he has to learn a trade of some kind. And, you know, he doesn't... <laughs> The poor guy, because the um, the polio has weakened him in so many different ways, uh, even though he was fit, the first thing they do is try to get him to do hairdressing, gents hairdressing, to become a barber. He's like, I couldn't handle standing. I could just couldn't stand up. Then they tried doing glass blowing, and he's like, I can't blow glass. Every time I blow it, my arms would become weak, and it would just bend. So in desperation, uh, he starts getting into, I think he was like doing wood lathing, this kind of thing, or wood turning. And he ultimately ends up being exceptionally good at it. But as he's doing it, right, he starts talking to older people that have been doing this for a long time. And he said these old blokes would tell them all about their supernatural experiences. And he was taken in. Like he was, it was almost like this thing had been set up for him. Mm. So like it didn't work, it didn't work. And the next second he comes across a group of people that are describing just really unusual supernatural events. And around this time, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in his life. His parents' marriage was, you know, coming to an end. His father had had an affair, you know, just horrible things. His father was going bankrupt. But all of that seemed to be kind of irrelevant. It was like he was going through his own experience himself. And he wasn't feeling well one day. He had this, this headache and it was nothing serious. But this woman says, oh, I really think that you should, you should lie down. And he's like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And then this woman... This is in his, uh, in his, his shop, family's in his, restaurant. In his, in his family's restaurant, right? This woman that turns to his mother and says, oh, where's the gray-haired lady who used to work here? 
And his mother said, oh, that was Mrs. Packman who used to cook and wash for us. And she's like, no, 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 no. This woman was, was tallish, but largely built. And the mother listened to this description and she's like, oh my God, that was my mother who died a few months ago. And this woman just kind of smirks and she says, oh yes, yes it was. And uh, she has a message for you. And she says that uh, she's very sorry that your son caught polio from the stagnant pond in the front yard. And she's always felt very guilty about this. But now that she has passed, she can do things to help him moving forward. And his mother was absolutely dumbfounded. This is Paul's mother. She was just like, what? But she was more dumbfounded because before her mother had died, she had a discussion with her where they'd spoken about psychical phenomena and about life after death. And in this discussion about life after death, I think Paul's mother had said something along the lines of, well, why is it always psychics that are trying to contact the dead? If the dead really live on after this, if there really is an afterlife, well, then the dead should contact the mediums and then get the mediums to seek out family members. And this is what she proposed to do. This is what the grandmother said is what she would do. So the fact that this woman walks into this restaurant and relays this message of guilt that she surely couldn't have known about was just just dumbfounding. Like it was really dumbfounding for Paul's mother. And they started to realize that there is something beyond the grave. So eventually he got involved with the local uh, spiritualist church right? yeah. and ended up joining their mediumship circle. Yeah, they obviously sensed that he had some type of ability. So he was invited to get into a development circle. And this development circle kind of really took off into him kind of becoming a medium. And there was this one experience he describes where he suddenly found himself dropping into a trance. Like, and he was getting very, very cold. Like he was getting quite chilled and his teeth were chattering. And funnily enough, that's something that was described by Nandor Fodor, Nandor Fodor working with researchers. They noted that whenever someone went into a trance and there was an entity near, their body temperature dropped, even though the room temperature hadn't changed. So this is kind of, you know, confirming that maybe he was experiencing something. But in that particular incident, I recall that he he could sense that there was something there that was trying to talk, but because it couldn't come through fully, I think he forced it and just get it away. Like it just, it just took off. But I mean, a lot of this happens over many, many years and his psychic abilities clearly are developed through these, uh, these circles and interactions. But we get to the 1970s and he describes how, even though previously he was reluctant to work with friends, he has this friend, Martin. And this friend, Martin says, look, you know, we've moved into this uh, first floor flat, but there's this weird kind of uncanny feeling that we're being watched. And then we walk into cold spots in the house and it's just very unsettling. I know that you've got some psychic abilities. Can you come and have a look at the house? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, sure. Just as a favor. Just as a favor. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, sure. Not a problem. So he goes to this house, to his friend's Martin's house. And as soon as he walks in, he says that he does a little prayer. Uh, he brings a few people with him because they do a circle. And almost immediately he sees this old lady materialize in the corner of the room. And she looks like she's wearing this 1930s long flowing dress and her hair was gray. It was done up in a bun. She's pissed off. She's pissed off. Like she's really, really angry. She's like, what are these people doing in my house? Get rid of them. Get rid of them. <laughs> and he's like, you're dead. He's essentially a ghost whisperer. He tells her like, you're dead. And he realizes after talking to this woman that it's actually 40 years have passed since she was in that home. But to her, it's only been a few months. Yeah. Because it's it describes time, this, this difference yeah, in time. This difference in time. And she's still stuck there. So he he leaves, right? Because I'm thinking, well, how is he going to clear this? He doesn't tell her to go onto the light. There are a few ex examples of where he describes 
um, telling some spirits that they should look for a speck of light somewhere. Yeah, or a door uh, or, or a door, exactly. Going back, you know, this crossover we've got with these stories today, Nandor Fodor describes something quite similar where he had patients that described that when they were in trance, that uh, some of them, which would, they would leave their bodies, like they would have an out-of-body experience. They would describe themselves usually as having a physical astral body, like they could see the form of their body, but other people would describe floating along like a golden glowing egg, but there would always be this sliver, like the silver slither cord that would go back to the body. But some of these people would describe seeing a door of some kind, like a weird kind of door. There was one guy who would go through this door, but the door wouldn't go to another realm. It would go to like different places around the world and he would <laughs> pop up in like friends' living rooms and, That's cool. and would be seen veridically. Like there would be a veridical confirmation that this guy had been somewhere else, even that it was he was on the opposite side of the globe and in his bed at night, but he was doing this astral traveling. But what was really strange about that particular report is that this guy claimed to be doing it quite frequently. Like he said that in his waking life, he could see these doors everywhere and he would. He just In his waking life? In his waking life, he he could start to see these doors so after going he, traveling. Could he physically walk through them even if he wasn't out of body? He disappeared. <laughs> what do you mean he disappeared? He disappeared. No one ever found him again. Wait, just, what? Yeah, he just... He's missing 411. He disappeared from the face of the planet. <laughs> and this is like some of these elements of... And I think it was looking at uh, Brad Steiger's The Mind Travelers as well. Um, you know, it's looking at these ideas of there being the dangers, that are the inherent dangers of when you start you know, uh, messing with the astral yeah. realms and how it manifested your daily life. Well, now this puts into perspective the story that I always complain about, about the the magician who was walking home after a show to his hotel room and he just saw like this weird light yes. door appear in an abandoned car park. Yeah. And he described it just forming out of nothing. And instead of going through it, he just went back to the hotel. Yeah. And but we were if like, he why went, didn't you walk through it? <laughs> if he went through it, then... We wouldn't even have that story. We wouldn't even, yeah, we wouldn't have even had that. Yeah. It would just be gone. So there are these, you know, these a plethora of these... I mean, obvious, I shouldn't say a plethora, but there are, you know, some examples of this that are out there. And, you know, in fact, going into to Fodor's book before I go back to what Paul was describing, there was this one particular story. No, it wasn't Fodor, I'm sorry. This was described by by Brad Steiger in a, in a 1960s book. Another and 50 cent paperback. This is another, no, this is a uh, three sixpence. So I don't even know what that is, a book. Uh, but he describes this experience of a man that would have spontaneous out-of-body experiences. Um, it was actually described to Oliver Fox. And Oliver Fox had this uh, colleague that described these experiences. But he wanted to remain anonymous about this kind of stuff because apparently he was a professional. And if he had spoken about these sorts of things, he would be considered to be you know, quite uh, ridiculous and mm. didn't want the ridicule from it. But he describes this scene on one particular evening where he projects himself out of his body and he finds himself in his parents' home. And he said they were getting on in their years and he liked to check in on them now and again just to make sure that they were both well. I'm like, what's wrong with a telephone call? But that's fine. You project yourself out of your body. And he'd have the typical kind of experience where he would be out of his body. He would be in his full astral kind of form like it was him. Um, you know, and some people have described this, that when they're out of body, like they're astral, there was one guy describing that when he had his first spontaneous astral experience, that he felt a like a rubber band snap, like this, like he heard it. He said it was like a rubber band snapping, and the next second his entire body crumpled up into the top of his skull. What? Like it just went like an accordion, just went vroom, up into the top of his skull. 
And then it was like there was a tiny little door, like a tiny little flap at the back of his skull. Oh, yeah. So he climbed out. Like, he literally climbed out of his skull. Is this... Didn't you describe this, or is this a different story? No, this is story? a different one. That was a woman that described going up into a skull and, yeah. and kind and of being projected out. Explaining this, that point at the, yeah. the back of the it's skull. It's the same thing, right? But this guy, when he climbed out of his body, he kind of climbed out like silly string. It was like... All like flying out of his head and then it piled on the floor like this collection of cotton and then it materialized into his form but he was naked and then he starts wandering as he starts walking it's almost like some weird star trek replicator kind of thing where it's like 21st century clothing and all of a sudden he's dressed <laughs> and he's like oh okay this is great and, and he wanders off well this is the same thing that kind of happened to this guy is that he was in his full astral form with his clothing on but in this particular incident that was described by Fox, when he was checking on his parents, he said he knew out of nowhere that there was a, a malignant aura of evil. What? It was this strange vibration, and he felt it like tugging on that silver cord, right? He could feel it. And he's looking around in this astral space, and behind him, he sees this horrific, Goblin. shapeless, black mass that was swirling towards him. It was like a Tasmanian devil tornado mm. coming towards him. And he says, oh my God, and like immediately, it's like I felt the vibration. Like I could see it and I could, it's like in a weird kind of um, like synesthesia kind of effect, I could feel the vibration. And he's like, I've got to get the hell out of that. He's like, oh my God, this thing, it's trying to break my cord. It's trying to kill me. And he describes that he was a neophyte in astral traveling in those days. So he had no idea what to do, but he knew if that cord was severed, he was stuffed. Like there was no way he could get back in his body. And in a flash of understanding, he realized that this disgusting black mass wanted to destroy and sever that cord because it wanted to inhabit his physical uh. body. Like it was trying, and it started, it does, it starts gnawing on the cord. It's trying to usurp his fleshy shell because if it broke that cord, it could then enter into the cord and then get back into his body. Gross. So telepathically, as he's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so he's running, run, running. He's running. <laughs> like you're an astral form, you can fly, but for whatever reason, maybe it's the fear. This guy's like, <laughs> and he's running. As he's running, this cloud is like bobbing along behind him going, no, no, I'm stronger than you. I'm going to do good things with your body. You don't need the body. You can leave. And keeps on telling him these things. He's like, why can't I borrow it? You know, just yeah, let, just uh, let me borrow it yeah, for a day. Yeah, he's like, it was making it clear that it had a use for my physical body. But what that use was, I have no idea. And he says, I resolved not to be destroyed by this thing. I dove right through it. And he says, as he dove through it, he said he was momentarily stifled because he was like hitting the density of this mass. He says, and that is when the race really began. And this thing was pacing him as he shot back towards his body. Now he gets back to his body, right? And he runs into his seat and he throws his door open and sees his body lying there, except he can't see his body fully because that black mass has now turned into this weird sparkling shimmering cloud, which is all, still black, but all over his body and trying to stop him from getting, it was like acting like some weird shield. Mm stopping him from getting into his body. Now, this guy dives, like he jumps and pushes through this cloud. And he says, as he does, it feels like he's being surrounded by this inky blackness. It was like he was a meteorite hitting the atmosphere, being turned into flaming dust by friction. It was like, and he finally breaks through and gets back into his physical body. But when he gets back through, he's sick for three weeks. Like he's completely oh. sick and drained and exhausted. 
as a result of encountering this thing. So, I mean, there are dangers, you know, on the astral plane that you've got to be careful, which, as I pointed out before, can not only manifest, you know, in the astral space, but they also can influence us in our physical plane here as well. So uh, going back to, to Paul after he'd cleared this old lady out, the way that he cleared the old lady out is that he calls up Martin. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I'm just going to call upon the White Brotherhood to get rid of her. And three days later, he meditates and speaks with Omid, who was a spiritual teacher of his that has shown up at some point. And he's like, can you uh, escort her out of the house? And she literally gets psychically evicted (laughs) from her house. (laughs) And this Martin guy's like, oh, thanks so much. The house is much lighter now. It's, oh, there's no cold spots anymore. He's like, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. So... These strange things just continue happening, you know, throughout his life. Uh, there's a whole heap of incidents that take place. I'll link to this full book in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can actually check it out for yourself. But then there's other points that become a little bit more unusual towards the the back of the book as we start moving through. You know, there was one great example of how um, he said that he'd gone to his friend's home. This was Andy Thomas, and he lived in East Sussex. I think it was a, an area called, it was a village called Fletching. And uh, apparently a friend connected to him uh, said that, look, you know, we've kind of got a problem because uh, they too could see around this white door. Like there was like a beam of light that they could see when they were in the astral state. Yeah, right. And there'd be a man that would weep. And, you know, this is how they were pushing people over, right? This is how they were going through these, these processes. But in this particular house, right, apparently there was a footprint that would appear in the carpet. Oh, yeah. I saw this story. I didn't end up finishing it. Yeah, this footprint. Would it, it just wouldn't, they couldn't, it, they get, couldn't rid get rid of it. it. They vacuumed it, they rubbed it. It's just stuck it would just in come the back. carpet. It was like thick pile carpet and there was no reason for this footprint. It should just spring back and yeah. disappear, but they couldn't get rid of it. And this is because they were working with this man, right? This man that was in the house, this presence. But the reason why this male presence was in the house is because he was looking for his small son that had died in a fire in the house. Mm. And he, so that footprint apparently was that of the young son. That was there. So when they got this guy to move on, uh, the footprint disappeared. Like it was just, it was gone. And years later, they spoke to locals and they said, well, yeah, this site, this house had actually built, had been built on the side of an old abattoir. And this abattoir was a disruptor of psychic energy. So that contributed to what was going on. And indeed, 150 years ago, a little son had died in a house fire that was on that site. The father and son both died. They both they? died. Yeah. yeah. So for, for them, that was proof that there was something that was otherworldly that was still coming through and affecting them in, in, in this reality. So moving forward, you know, he has uh, a number of odd experiences, but nothing that's really outstanding until later on, you know, many years later, again, this pain factor comes back because one day he wakes up with this great pain in the base of his spine and he says nothing seemed to relieve it. The doctors gave him painkillers, but that didn't seem to work. So he phones up a woman by the name of Gladys and asks if she could come over and give him some type of spiritual healing. And there is, there's a group of them. It's like a, it's Gladys has this band of disciples and they come about and they lie, they get him to lie down on the couch and they do this hands-on healing kind of thing that takes place. And he says during this this layering of hands, um, he says he f- sees what's taking place around him. And she describes these two doctors that appear. And he says these doctors insert a tube into his stomach and are draining it. 
but it's not his stomach. It's his etheric stomach. Like, and they're draining some type of well, substance. It's still his stomach. It's still his stomach. Yeah, exactly. And he says, I don't know how this was supposed to heal my back, but for whatever reason, when this session was over, in a few hours, the pain had subsided and by morning it had completely gone. But he says, this is not the end of the story. What I had not told Gladys or her helpers was that for quite a few months before the back pain, he had been experiencing excruciating stomach pains. And these doctors had not only come in and cleared his back, but they had also worked on his stomach. So that's how, and they didn't know about this. So again, you know, this is kind of unusual that they they weren't aware of this. And yet these were the entities that were coming through and performing these things. So he gets to 28. And this is where he says he was plunged into the most horrific period of his life. This is another one of those seven-year yeah, seven periods. Yeah, this is the fourth seven-year cycle. You know, Rudolf Steiner said that the human being develops in seven-year periods as Did well. Did he really? Yeah. I wonder why seven it's is. Like zero to seven and then seven to 14. And it's there's specific things that happen as well. Like when you turn 14, that's when you start to think more broadly and think about spiritual things and oh. expand your consciousness out because your main your main consciousness is coming down from the heavens into your body. And it's funny because when I was I was reading that, I realized that's when I started to think about uh, religion. That's when I started to think about spirituality when I was 14. Mm. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. You start asking questions when you're 14, like what is, yeah, what's what is really going on? What is the meaning of life and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. And then it's interesting because these cycles, I was reading a different philosopher later, he claimed that um, they keep going. <laughs> so when you get to the age of 42, for example, there's a whole other cycle. And then at 49, there's another one. So this just keeps on going until you're into your 80s. Oh, wow. You were telling me actually the other day about Steiner's ideas because my my son, my four-year-old son, for whatever reason at the moment, he's really clingy. Like he's really extremely clingy and I, I, I don't understand why. And I guess it's just what happens with kids going through. But you were saying that Steiner describes that it's like uh, your astral field supports your kid's astral field into they're about seven. Was that think, the same thing? I think they refer to it as the etheric field. Oh, the etheric field. And right. the child that's under seven hasn't fully developed their own. So they rely on their carers, their parents, to give them that etheric field. So that's why they're, they're always on Clingy, you. yeah. And uh, this is part of a, a parenting course I'm doing, actually. Once a week I go down and there's like a three-hour lecture of this stuff. And uh, the teacher was explaining that w when you're a parent with small children, that's why <laughs> that's part of why you feel drained all the time. Like, yeah, you don't get much sleep, but the the little ones are actually relying on your etheric field. So she said, when you have kids that once they turn seven, she said a lot of parents one day they'll go, oh, I've got so much energy all of a sudden. Like, where have I got this energy from? And it's because they no longer need to tap into your energy field their fields now whole they've formed their own and yeah. off they go I, I find that fascinating it's a really fascinating concept and yeah maybe it just simply is because you're tired but I don't know like maybe there is something else that's going on and maybe at the same time though remember how we've described children seem to be able to see things are able to recall past life memories usually by the age of seven for the most part yeah they're gone yeah so it's like maybe having a weakened field, you know, permits you to see these things and, and, and you know, kind of get in contact with these things and that disappears after the age of seven. Well, the, there's other correlations I kept on noticing. One of the big ones was in that philosophy, you're, you're still basically a child at 21. It's like 21 to 28 is when you fully form your core conscious self. 
Well, you know, psychologists are suggesting now as well that your brain isn't fully formed until you're 30. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of the a lot of the spiritual philosophy that came from you know Steiner in the 1800s is now being confirmed by yeah these modern yeah. scientific discoveries. So then this leads to broader questions in society, like should you really be voting when you're 21 <laughs> no, years old? Because yeah. you haven't or drinking. Com- yeah, all of those things. You haven't completely formed. Uh, a full adult consciousness. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting concept. So, um, speaking of those ages, though, so we're at this, you know, twenty-eight years old, the fourth seven-year cycle for for Paul, and he says that yeah, this was the most horrific period of his life because he had been hearing about the Beatles guru Maharishi, which is pretty terrifying in itself, and he said that he'd gotten into himself into transcendental meditation, and at first it was incredible. The results were wonderful. Uh, he followed this kind of uh, method that was raising his consciousness and transcendental meditation just gets you there much faster. He's meditating for 20 minutes a day. But he says, after the experience of ecstasy for nine months, I had the most profound feeling of horror I ever could imagine. What happened? He says, I remember one occasion I was sitting in the kitchen when a rushing and roaring sound started in my ears. My whole body was taut as a bowstring and I felt as if there was a hole in the middle of the floor (laughs) that was sucking my soul and my body into it. (laughs) That's right. If I allowed myself to go, my brain would snap and I would become insane. I was banging my head on a table, anything to make it go away. Yet the whole time he was going through this tormentous, uh, mind-splitting pain. It was horrible. Yeah, like an, a, a constant struggle. Yeah, a constant. But he says, always and only just perceptibly, I was aware of a something, a watcher. Like there was something just in the corner of the room. And he later on found out that this thing was like an entity that was saying, no, you have the strength to conquer this, to come to terms with this, and above all, understand it. And what this was, it was like a, um, you have to go through this. It's like an ego death in a way. It's like a removal of all those layers so that your ego doesn't overtake you. If you do develop these abilities, if you allow your ego to get in the way, it's very, very dangerous. So he did have to get sucked into the black hole. Kind of, in, in a way. Room. <laughs> well, in desperation, he points out that he went to see Eileen Newport, who was a leader of a new circle that he'd joined, you know, only recently. And he said that uh, he was told by her that he had met the dweller on the threshold. Oh. And she gave no more information about it because it's kind of like a, a personal thing that you need to come to un- an understanding of yourself. And He said, I knew it wasn't an evil being. It wasn't something that was plundering my senses. I wasn't in mortal combat with an invisible enemy. But in a way, he was because the enemy was his ego. And he was in a process of killing off a part of himself that he no longer needed. And that's kind of what happened. You know, like even though it's a traumatic, incredibly stressful experience, it changed something. Like it removed that ego part of him, which could have interfered with things, which really could have messed with things. And oddly enough, it actually, later on, he describes this experience of someone who uh, is, a, I guess, an associate of his, who allowed the ego to get in the way. And this ego kind of really oh, destroys is, things. Is this the guy that was convinced he was Jesus? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know how much of this story you're going to tell, but all right. it's pretty funny when he's trying to prove that he's Jesus. It's retarded. It's so <laughs> stupid. It's actually really stupid. So he gets this phone call. This is Paul. He gets this phone call and uh, it's this guy, Tony. And Tony's like, oh, yeah, you have to come around. You have to come around. He's like, oh, why? He's like, look, I need you to meet someone. He's like, who? He's like, Carl Jung. So he's like, um, okay, yeah, fine. So he, he goes to see Tony 
And Tony was kind of like acting a little bit odd and he sets up this silent prayer and they start, you know, trying to go into this meditative state and he watches as Tony's expression changes and he appears to be what Paul describes as overshadowed. And this, this um, entity, this form comes through and Tony starts speaking in this slight German accent. He's like, my name is Carl Jung. And he's like, oh, um, well, where were you born? And there's this slight pause, and we know exactly what this is. This is a lying, low-level entities because the, the entity goes, from my mother's womb. And he's like, okay, well, I guess you've got a, a sense of humor. And this entity keeps on trying to convince him that he is Carl Jung that's coming through Tony. And, you know, Paul says Tony seems quite convinced that it really was Carl Jung. So they keep on doing sessions. Like, they keep on engaging with it. I don't understand why, but they do. They keep on engaging with it. And it's never really clear. Like, there's just always little bits that come through and, you know. Yeah, it just keeps stringing them along, basically. But he says that as this happens, it's like Carl Jung kind of disappears and they start moving through the ages and there's the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and they're standing behind Tony. All these personalities Exactly. All these new personalities come through and there's some Chinese wise man that comes through known as Lao Tse Po. Oh, no, it gets worse. It Love actually it? gets worse. Oh, save the you've gong got, for later? Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you have to because you've got low-level racist entities. <laughs> okay. So what happens <laughs> he is... He just told me before the show to get the gong ready. <laughs> I thought that was my moment. <laughs> no, I was close. a bit presumptuous. <laughs> you were presumptuous. So Tony was starting to say really outrageous things as well. He was saying things like, man can now make a nuclear bomb powerful enough to blow up the sun and that uh, Tony actually had worked as a carpenter. Wait, and- wait, let's go back. Man can now make a nuclear bomb powerful enough to blow (laughs) up the sun. And then somehow Tony himself, I don't know if it's a previous life or anything, was Jesus. Like Jesus starts, you know, kind of showing up. Uh, He was also an Aztec priest. And apparently some Aztec priest was there to operate on Tony to improve his healing ability. He goes over to to speak to Tony while he's Jesus and asks Tony to prove how he's Jesus. He's like, look into my eyes. (laughs) The color will change. And there's a certain, obviously his eyes don't change. There's a certain point where he's like, okay, I'll show you that I'm Jesus. And he just starts pushing his hands up towards the ceiling and going, (laughs) and then, yeah, Paul's like, "Uh, I don't see how that proves that you're Jesus. That's not doing anything. Well, this is where... Doesn't he make like a little love triangle with his fingers at one point? Yes. As if that's meant to prove that he's Jesus. Oh, So listen to this. This is, he says, during one session with Tony... Uh, this other entity comes through and it uses Tony's body, right? And as it comes through, he's watching as the he's being operated on. He says, apparently, like, he's being operated on by this entity. And Paul points out, I was in no position to intervene. And as Tony is lying on the floor, these personalities were coming and going. And so Paul decides to tune in clairvoyantly to watch what happens. And this is, like, really creepy. It's got this weird astral element to it. Because he says that he watches as this man in black robes appears. He looks like he's dressed like a Greek Orthodox priest. And he bends over Tony and applies small, sharp wooden needles all over his body like acupuncture. And then he lowers some weird glass dome over his head, like over his astral body. And Tony lays there like that for an hour. And at one stage, he said he could feel like a weight on his chest. And then finally, Tony starts to shake with this cold and he opens his eyes and he's kind of recovered, but he's not recovered. It's like these entities have done something to him. It's like Mm. they've primed his physical body to facilitate the 
attachment of an entity or something. Because the next day, Paul gets a phone call from a lady, to, and I don't know if it was Tony's girlfriend, but saying that Tony was acting a little bit weird. She says he's acting like a Chinaman all the time. <laughs> That's my cue. Not even yet. No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Not yet. Keep going. Because Paul says, oh, I'll be right over there. Now, he arrives at the house on Station Road. Tony opens the door, bows, puts his hands together, and is, hello. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> Does he have a big straw hat on it, like yeah, a, a, a wispy Rudy tr- teeth coming out? Wispy moustache. It's terrible, right? And he's like, "Oh my god!" Uh, it's like the ego, like the ego has now completely taken over. And there's no, re- he says, "There's no real intelligence here. It's just like all these low-level entities. Something had finished its work, and they now had access to him." Can he speak Chinese or anything? Like, no, is there anything no, he's just like, he's just <laughs> doing terrible races. Hurrah. <laughs> it's like oh, something we would do. Yes. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous. Like this, he keeps on trying to say that he's some spiritual healer from, you know, Lao Tse Po and like, none of it's true. None of it's true. And then he, Jesus comes back and like, the guy's lost. Like there's, and there's nothing you can do. This happens to some people. It's like, there's, there's nothing you can do. They're, com- they're completely gone. Um, yeah. There's no kind of, happy resolution to that story. It, no. He just basically has a crazy friend now and that's yeah. that's it. Oh, look, he says, look, after talking to him for a while, it was obvious that, you know, he was manip- being manipulated by a low-level elemental intelligence. Like, there's there's nothing else to do it. And apparently the, the Chinaman personality lasted for a week. Then he left. Then Jesus came back. And then another entity left. And then apparently he... You know, somehow knew Paul from a village of 4,000 years ago. Yeah, and got drunk together. Got drunk together. And yeah, it, it just becomes this absolute joke where it's clear that there's all these entities and you, you just can't, you know. And all of them are lying. They are. It's just all low-level entities. You know, so skipping forward, you know, then Paul starts describing, you know, how he... Um, ran into like the earth to lyric grid. This is like one of the earliest experiences he has with it because he wanders out into one of these Stonehenge kind of sites. I don't know if it was, I think it was Avery, right? He wanders to, and he starts walking towards this large stone. And as he walks towards it, he says it's ex- uh, extraordinary because he says it was like wading through water. It was difficult to walk without any kind of effort. It was just harder and harder until he turned around. And as soon as he turned around, it's like he was going with a current. Mm. And this was this telluric current, this incredible earth grid that he's starting to actually physically feel as a result of his psychic experience. That was like years ago in Joshua Tree, uh, when I was at Contact in the Desert, we we joined this group that did a ceremony around Giant Rock and we were chanting and singing this Native American song as like a ceremony going around the rock. Right. And I was just joining in for the lols. Did you feel anything? Well, eventually we'd done about three laps of the Giant Rock and one of the local people said, uh, the energy actually goes in the other direction. <laughs> and so we had to like rewind the chant because <laughs> it was breaking some telluric energy. <laughs> oh. You know, I didn't know where this book was going to go. I had no idea where this book was going to go until we get to the chapter on on Jim and his wife, Anne. This, this is why I sent you the book. This was my gift to you. <laughs> I don't know how much of a gift this is. This is a great gift. Okay, so uh, unfortunately suffering from, you know, polio, and he says, I, I, I didn't have a lot of work, you know, so I would do voluntary social work. And he says for, you know, once a week for eight years, he would go and visit Jim Redding, who was a victim of, of multiple sclerosis, you know, a very debilitating illness. And 
Jim had a wife by the name of Anne, and ultimately he ends up becoming close friends with both of them and is somewhat part of the family. He says Jim is this very intelligent and articulate man, and we spent many hours together locked in conversation, and Anne was an artist whose original works were being reproduced and sold all around the world, and she looked after Jim as best as she could, but sometimes it was necessary for... You know, him to, this is Paul, to come in and help and just take the load off yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you know, he felt like this was kind of a gift that he could do. And conversation, you know, ranged from wild things to religion and, you know, occasionally they would touch on psychic matters. And Jim neither believed nor disbelieved. Like, he listened, he listened and knowing that Paul wasn't a complete fool. And so there was this session or this time where in one of the conversations, Anne produces this brass ship's propeller. Like, it was obviously from a model because it was only three inches long. And she says to Paul, do you think you can do some psychometry on this? And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, and he's, he's learned about psychometry previously. So he takes this propeller, he clears his head, and he tunes into this brass object that he's holding in his hands. And he says, at first I saw clouds blowing very quickly across the sun as if time was suddenly sped up and days were flashing past. Then I see Anne standing in front of a very ornate glass-topped table in a beautifully furnished room with long drapes. Standing behind her was a rather tallish, very dark, good-looking man who was putting a thick gold chain around her neck. And then he says, at this point in my reading, I hear a gasp and then a sudden huge explosion. And then Anne gasping again. And the reading came to an end. So he comes out of this scene and he opens his eyes and he asks Anne, he's like, what? You know, why were you gasping? And She's like, you saw a man that I once knew. I knew who gave me that necklace, but he died in an explosion during the war. So everything he saw, basically. Everything he saw, right? And he's like, well, what's that got to do with the propeller? Yeah, exactly. How did the propeller come into that? And she's like, well, it was in the building where he died during the blitz. Like, it's kind of like this simple kind of connection. So maybe he had a model ship or something because it was small. Um, But she says, who do you think it was? And he says, into my head comes a name, Al Bowley. And he just dismissed it as being ridiculous. And he just kind of lies and says, oh. He doesn't tell it, yeah. yeah. I don't know, I don't know. And the next week he visited as usual and, you know, they were chatting. And it just so happens that Jim says, look, it's Anne's birthday next week, so can you buy me an Al Bowley album? And he's like, I hadn't mentioned that name. Like, how how did he come up with, with Al? And so he manages to go out and get this album. And Al Bowley was this 1930s big band singer. Like he was a big name at the time. He gave the album to to Jim and then they had a conversation and that was it. Now the following week, he goes to see Jim and Anne. Now Anne was out and <laughs> Jim just wasn't his usual self. And Paul says, look, what's what's wrong? What's, what's happened to you? And Jim's like, oh. I don't know how to tell you this. He's like, no, don't tell me what happened. He's like, okay, I, I need to talk to someone. Okay, I need to talk to someone. Can I tell you something? And Paul responds, yes, of course. He says, well, the other day when I got that Al Bowley album that I, that I played for Anne, the moment that it started playing, Anne's eyes seemed to take on a strange look. I'd never seen that look on her face before and then came the strangest thing of all. She started to take all of her clothes off. <laughs> I asked what she was doing and she didn't answer me. She then lay down on the floor and I swear to you, Paul, something was making love to my wife. We've been married for well over 30 years and I know when my wife is being made love to. <laughs> and he's like, uh, Paul says, well, who was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
He says, like that. Like that, like that. He says, you're not going to believe this, but I discovered that Anne was married to Al Bowley before she married me. Okay, so this is just just absolutely wild, right? This is just insanity. <laughs> just the scene of him putting the record on and she just starts taking her clothes off, <laughs> lying down on the floor and then just getting rogered by something. Yes. And he's, he's just, well, he can't even stand. He's just kind of stuck there because he's got this, this disability. What a horrible thing to happen. Like, it's so <laughs> weird. So at this point, Anne arrives home and she realized, obviously, they've been discussing what had happened. So Anne sits down and joins in the conversation. And she tells Paul that after the incident where she'd made love to Al, uh, she woke up in the morning to find a telephone notepad next to a bed with all of Al's writing in it. So somehow, I don't know, but the music had triggered something to allow him to come back through and not only Roger her, but also possess her at night, write love letters to her. On beside the bed and she would wake up in the morning exhausted. This ties into the segment I've got coming up in the plus extension. There's something about the music and the creator of the music oh. that is embedded. The spirit of the creator is literally embedded into that record. So when he played it, when he played the record for his wife, the, the spirit, of course it has access to her because the spirit is in the music. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, um, she points out, look, I'm afraid that you know, the, the writings are very crude because he was a very virile man. And uh, making love to him was like having a drink. He could make love 10 times a day and was obsessed with sex. So that's the other thing, right? Like with the ego and it doesn't pass over, like these kind of, um, I guess, you know, needs and wants that people have. Sometimes they can move over into the other realm and then come back through. And yeah, he looks at the letters and he's like, oh, this is like a penthouse, you know, magazine forum. It was, it was pretty sexual. And so. Nice caboose, doll. Yeah. (laughs) Like 1930s. Dirty slang. Like, yo, I've got to... Show me your ankles, honey. It's a nice box. I'd like to crack your safe, doll. What a hot broad. Look at my ghost bulge. (laughs) But it gets worse. It gets even worse. How can it get worse than that? Because he gets spirit cucked. (laughs) The entity, this owl entity... (laughs) Yeah, keeps banging his wife. Keeps banging his wife, but moves into the house. And because he's got the husband, Jim, has got multiple sclerosis, they, like, start sitting down watching television, and it's, like, more energy because the... Freaking spirit just sits down and yeah. watches TV with them. There's nothing he can do. Like he's just stuck there. He's in a wheelchair or something, and he just hears his wife getting rogered by this invisible dead ex-husband <laughs> in, in the bedroom. There's nothing he can do. And then he has he has got to read these cheesy 1930s messages. <laughs> in the morning. So Paul uh, says to her, look, can I leave a note? Like uh, he writes up all these questions for Al. He writes it up uh, on a typewriter and says, can you leave it by the bed? Because I want to ask Al these questions. And, you know, he wanted to know what kind of clothing he's wearing. What's it like on the other side? You know, and uh, he, she wakes up one morning and finds that the piece of paper with the questions on it had been cast aside. But he had actually written some of these responses on the telephone notepad, but it was still like a lot of sexual innuendo in the meantime. But for him, like what I was describing with the old woman that was psychically evicted from the house, where only months had passed, Al had been dead for decades, like a long time. But for him, it was like weeks. He says day went by like seconds, weeks like minutes and years like months. Like it's just 
it hadn't been that long. And it was here where finally Anne decides to to block him off, and she does so quite successfully. He never quite... He never gets to the point of how she does that. Like, how does she no. actually block him off? Does she just burn the records? Does she just stop? Because obviously the the point in that is that she's inviting the activity. It's not like she's being, this is being thrust upon her against her will. She's openly well, she's, she's open accepting it, which makes it doubly bad for the husband. <laughs> You're just getting cucked night after night. Oh. He's living in your house. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, it's like a, a some Atlantic or Washington Post article that would come up of like, my husband's boyfriend moved into the house and I don't know what to do. It'd be funny, he just starts eating the husband's dinner and drinking beer out of the fridge. It's just like, just pushes his wheelchair out of the hallway so he can have sex with his wife. <laughs> uh, anyway, skipping forward, then um, he describes other kind of uh, examples of how they can send out energy as well to go and do some clearances for some people. So Amy, for example, was this woman who was suffering from, you know, strange interactions with entities and she wants to be exercised. Like she asks for, for Paul's assistance in exercising these entities. And he's like, yeah, sure, we can do this. Like we can purify you, you know, at distance. And she's like, oh, Okay. And she describes later on that she was about to doze off from sheer exhaustion after she'd been pestered by these entities when she says there's this large, sharp crack or crash of some kind that causes her to shoot a couple of feet into the air, like her nerves are in such a state, and she can't find anything. But all of a sudden, there's like this massive urge of psychic energy that focuses on the house, and she's like, oh! There's static electricity flying around her and this giant clap and this thunderclap noise and, and it all like clears away like a wave and then the entity's gone. Like whatever it was was cleared. It was because they fired this kind of psychic energy ball that they created in this circle at the home to do this remote cleansing. So you know, fascinating kind of stuff. Um, but where the book becomes really quite unusual is that I skipped forward into, you know, his... I guess his future next cycle, like the next seven year cycle. And ultimately a couple of things happen. One is that he ends up getting really deep into dousing and using, you know, like ordnance survey maps to find energy centers that are all around the globe. You know, he focuses on the UK, obviously. However, in doing this and using uh, this kind of process of, in a way, energy focusing, he uses it for healing, but he also gets himself caught up in more interactions with entities. And it's almost like he's now opened himself up to to more experiences and more things start coming through. And he has entities come through, something like Grey Wolf is one. Grey Wolf? Yeah, Grey Wolf. It's like, an, I think he's an American Indian, so it's a little bit cliche of what these entities coming through are. Then there's Red Fox. But I, I feel like these entities are just masquerading as these things. It's almost like what we were only recently talking about, about the idea that the mind projects what people want to see. It was like we're talking about Dr. Yeah, Greg Little's little. yeah, yeah. archetypes, ideas. I think that is actually spot on in this circumstance for some people. I still think the entities are external. I still think that they're, you know, something on the outside. But what they're doing is they're tapping into the mind of the person and manifesting in a way that they want because he's like it's cliche like it's it's always cliche that you have this you know american indian spirit show up to guide the way 
But I know that yeah, there's something... a white guy in England. Yeah, a white guy in England straight does, away is like doesn't have like an Anglo-Saxon yeah. warrior. Yeah, or why don't you a, have a Viking? A, show even up? a Druid show yeah. up and give him some kind of guidance. It's an American Indian. Yeah, I mean, Come there, on. he does have some experiences where some Druid type thing shows up and it says, "Oh, I'm not really a Druid. It's more like a Druid." I'm like, I didn't know there was a difference, but anyway, a Druid. Yeah, it's like pronounced yes. But what grabs me right about this? is that he says there's this one point where this entity, I don't know if it was Grey Wolf or Red Fox, but what it does, like it's, it claims to be helpful to the, um, you know, to the, the people that are in this seance group. Mm-hmm. And so what this entity does, it shows up with this massive amethyst crystal it's a grey wolf, and this is grey wolf, and it shows up how, with this crystal. How does it show up with the crystal? Like, like it, f- it physically appears. They can see it, but like in their mind's eye, like okay, they can see okay. it as they're doing it, right? And when, well, actually, you know what? He just he doesn't really like. They can see it. Like I don't know if it's in is that it floating space. in the room. Like it's not really described. But what is described is that the entity wanders around the group, and it's like I'm going to help you clear out all of your third eye stress and hatred and emotional baggage. So start putting that. And he walks around with this crystal, and he holds it up to people, <laughs> and it's like <laughs> goes up to it, and he's like, <laughs> yeah, it's draining all this stuff out, all this baggage and pain, which is karmic stuff locked up in their subconscious. I'm like, no. Can't you see? This thing is draining you of your energy. It's taking your energy, yeah. It's taking your energy. <laughs> like it's walking around with a freaking crystal sticking it in your third eye. Takes your, your energy, energy, then it's going home and having sex with your wife. It's <laughs> <laughs> what these things do. <laughs> and then transforming into an ancient Chinese wise man. Yeah. <laughs> and being incredibly rude and racist. Uh, so yeah, a lot of crystals show up and, you know, that kind of stuff goes through. There's this other experience as well where he was describing how, you know, people can can dematerialize and, and disappear. There was this scene where um, like, there's, they go in a circle once again and there's two guys sitting opposite each other. And all they all they see at first is the experience that was described by I think it was Malcolm. He gets up and he kind of spins around and he makes a oh, and then kind of nothing happens, right? Mm. But to the group as they're watching or whatever happened, it, it turns out later on that this guy had gotten up and had made this noise and then dematerialized yeah, like he, he was gone he had vanished and then the guy that was sitting opposite him stands up and walks almost in a trance to the middle of the room and points down to this circle that's on the floor and it springs forth some weird like serpentine electrical energy that wraps itself around his arm and then disappears and the guy reappears like all these kind of it's got a parlor trick kind of feel to it but i think that these people are having these genuine experiences but i can't help but feel that after all these years of talking about low level entities that this is exactly what it is it's like they're being shown these well, yeah. exciting fun things i mean that's what séances are you're just messing with spirits really yeah exactly you know it's like they they're being drained they're being utilized as energy so look as i said i'll link to this book in the show notes so you can read it for yourself in full. What's the deal with the crop circle? There's a picture of a crop oh, circle in the, the back. crop circle. I thought that was going to be a good story. No, it really was Okay, so let, I'll explain it in a nutshell, like very briefly. So Paul describes that he ends up meeting with some type of entity called Job, not the biblical Job, like a J-O-E-B or something. And this is like a, a guardian entity that's responsible for, you know, maintaining certain sites around the UK. And I don't know if it's just there, but it's like these guardian kind of things that show up. And obviously it bestows people with energy and, you know, this kind of stuff. Well, he says that later on, 
he wants to meet with the crop circle makers. Like he's fascinated by crop circles. So as a group, there's like some Sussex crop circle group that get together and they want to see if they themselves can get in contact with a crop circle maker or even create a crop circle. When you say a group, they don't make crop circles. They're just studying the circles that appear. That's right. And when he says he wants to meet a crop circle maker, he means a spiritual entity. That's right. Yeah. And so what he does is that he gets in contact with, like they do some type of dousing, they perform this dousing ritual and they perform, so they use some type of music where I said, you know, they created that sound that they doused out. And as they do, they get in contact with a a Davic entity that's known as Damus, D-A-M-U-S. And this Damus says to them, yeah, look, I can help you manifest one of these crop circles. Like, I'm more than happy to help you. And he's like, oh, this is very exciting. Um, And then essentially like some weird kind of entity also comes through known as L or Ellen and it kind of gives him a warning and it's just just like, I'll let you read it because it's not really that interesting. The whole point of this is, is that they get together as a group and they apparently have some entity with them, this Damas Davic entity that's there. And they all go up to this particular hill where they've mapped out on, you know, some survey map to see where these telluric currents or these lines all line up. And they know that this is the site where it runs through a particular area. And if they do this ritual on a hill, uh, Damas told them they pour all their energy into this and it will run down this line, this energy line, which will cause the crop circle to appear. And they're like, okay, fine. So they do. They go and do this particular session. They produce a whole heap of crystals that they bury in the ground. Then they've got the, they start imagining like this golden light coming down as a Christ consciousness. Yes, it's actually called that into their bodies. And they're all, oh, as it's like going through their heads and streaming out through their solar plexus and into the crystal and then into the ground. And they do this for 30 minutes at sunset. They're all, oh, (laughs) Damas shows up. He's in his wheelchair. Oh, trying to get this energy through. And he's exhausted, like he's completely exhausted. But then they find that apparently those lines that are running through the location, they start multiplying, becoming more and more and more and more. So they've done something. Energy right? lines. These energy lines. And they're getting really excited about it. And they look over to this field and there's nothing there. Didn't do anything. Like there's some weird energy that they had created and they'd poured all this stuff in and they'd seen something and the entity had shown up. But and no nothing. result. Nothing. But then later on, he gets this phone call from a fellow dowser. It's like, you've got to go and check this out. You've got to go over to Fellbridge, which is near the A22. So where they were, they were focusing on the A23 in this field. And it happens that they have to go to the A22. They go there and they find this three crop circle formation that's just suddenly in the ground, like in the the crops. And it's like um, circle, bigger circle, bigger circle, and then circles inside them. And I'll put a, a photograph of it in the show notes so that you can see it for yourself. No, don't bother. It's not that interesting. It's actually not that interesting, right? So it's just it's just three circles that kind of appear. The thing is, though, is the reason why this is kind of, it's unusual and why they're quite shocked is because they did the whole thing in the wrong direction. This was on the exact same line of where they were trying to put ah. it. It went the wrong direction and landed up in the field on the opposite side. So it was along the same line. They'd done it, but they'd put the energy in the wrong way. And that's why it showed up. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. That was a spooky crop I was like, story. and that's why. Should have done that, that story last week to really top off the great stories. 
<laughs> that would have fit yeah. in nicely. And that was pages and pages and pages. Like he could have just said, we put some energy into the ground and it came out the other side. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, cool. Um, and look, but, you know, it's it's fine. Like it's just, then he gets a phone call. He ain't no end. Nandor Fodor. No, he ain't, no, right? you ain't no Nandor Fodor. And to, to finish this off, to put the nice you know, cream on the top, we have to go back to one of these experiences that Nandor Fodor had. And this is the phallus of youth. Oh, I forgot through. about this. This is the <laughs> this is a story of a woman named Gertrude. She was living in London, and uh, she was deeply in love with Charles, who was sadly deceased. Right, so um, she'd gotten remarried. Wait, she, she was married to him, then he died. Or no, I think she was just in love with this guy, and he had died, and she was still obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. But obviously, she'd gone off and married someone else. And it just so happens that she goes to see a, a spirit medium sometime. And when she sees this spirit medium, I think it was just on a like a whim. It was like a fun parlor thing mm-hmm. to kind of do. And she goes and sees this spirit medium. And when she sees the spirit medium, Charles comes through. And Charles is controlling the medium. And in fact, Mandel Fodor goes through to describe. There's quite a few cases of repressed homosexuality seemingly coming through with right. energies. Like there was one guy who had described that he had all these problems with his you know, repressed homosexuality. I mean, it's different times. I feel sorry for the guy. Um, but to the point where apparently um, he would wake up exhausted and it was because... Oh, no. One night, like, he finally woke up trying to work out what was wrong and it was because his repressed homosexuality had taken on his form and was climbing out of his body to go <laughs> drinking. So, <laughs> what, to go to gay bars yeah, to and go stuff. to bars so and drink. did he have conscious memory of it or was just another part of himself? It was just another part of him that was so repressed that it was actually breaking out at night in spiritual form, and, but in doppelganger form. Like, it was physical. It was and going off and, and doing whatever it was doing. And he was also saying that there's like a whole heap of mediums that he's researched and if they're male mediums and they've got repressed homosexuality, the uh, homosexuality kind of spirit will pretend to be a spirit and come through and like sit on the laps of male participants and be like, <laughs> just crazy stuff, right? So we are, we're probably moving into a better world where people don't have to repress that. So um, this is kind of the same thing with Gertrude, right? So Gertrude, she says that this medium kind of comes over and is all over her because it's Charles. Like it's this, this Charles entity. And she's like so sick with love for him that she she really really wants him but she's got problems so she's got all these problems and all these sex problems and all this stuff going on so the entity manifests an instrument a spiritual instrument manifests a spiritual implement uh, instrument in the room which she takes home and frequently uses no that when what she is takes it? this home and frequently uses this <laughs> instrument it imbues her with some type of energy and youthfulness <laughs> Guess what? It's another story of spiritual cucking because her husband has like, I don't know if he's got a heart condition or something, oh. so he can't screw her. So that's why this Charles thing comes through, creates a spiritual ectoplasmic dildo for her, <laughs> which she uses, which imbues her with energy. And the husband's like, it's okay. What's it made out of? So it's an actual physical object. It's a she physical, can take it yeah, home. And it's described by Fodor as an instrument. I'm like, we all know what it is. <laughs> But it's so physical that she's like, oh, she's all relaxed and looking young and youthful until the husband accidentally sits on it. Well, that came out the wrong way. <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> sure. And smashes it. And it's all like, if you wouldn't believe what happened, I just slipped over on a banana peel <laughs> and your watsamajigget from your special class was just sitting on the chair here. And I, it in happened the, in between the, the cushions yes, that it was standing up. Uh, like. As I fell over, my pants came off. 
And as you can see, I'm quite sweaty from the whole incident. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Paul Pelosi here, okay? So with the (laughs) experience that this happened, it's almost like, again, these low-level entities, I don't even think it was Charles, because once this thing is broken, it's like it was was providing something, but it was getting something because she suddenly becomes this withered hag, like she's drawn and all of her energy is gone and she's, she's a mess because this thing... Even though it was giving her something, it's like was a clearly con- taking something. It's a conduit. Yeah, it was like connecting her yeah. and was just... Spirit bra- dildo was a conduit. Yeah, but th- this weird sex thing that comes up. But that's why, you know, from a, a psychological standpoint, like sex is obviously a very you know, a human kind of thing. And it got me thinking about what we were describing with Dr. Greg Little and the archetypes and how they there was this idea that whatever these entities are, they need something about the human body. Like they need the human body to... And so this, I think, is an example of that. It's like it was using this instrument to basically make a conduit to this body that he could use for whatever purposes. And when it when the mystical object, the magical amulet was broken, mm. it broke the spell. Well, that's the idea with with um, with that kind of energy, like sexual energy contains some kind of vital essence that's required to form mm. the human body, to yep. form human life. So that's especially from Eastern medicine. If you ejaculate or if a woman orgasms, there's a release of that that uh, vital energy. And right. it, 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 human beings have a finite amount of it. And once it's expelled and gone, you can't get it back. Right. And so there's, there's ideas of possessing spirits once they gather enough of it. And this was the same idea that Greg Little was talking about with the succubi and the, the incubus, that once they get enough, they extract enough of this vital energy, they actually have enough to take on a human form. Right? Oh, to an like almost manifest in our reality. Yeah, to almost form a human body. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what I'm convinced is, you know, happening in a lot of these circumstances that, yeah, I mean, some people truly do have genuine experiences, connections with past over loved ones, you know, good guiding spirits. But ultimately, like with Paul's book, I mean, he's had some really fascinating experiences, but ultimately it just, it it feels like he's just being messed with by a bunch of low-level entities over and over and over again, you know, and it's almost like, as we've described with possession, it's like pain and uh, trauma and that kind of stuff. It all weakens your field and allows these things to come through. And in Paul's case, it's kind of manifested in a way that it seems like he's clairvoyant or spiritual. Yeah. But well, these things are messing with It struck me as an interesting life with a lot of weird MU stories in there, but not a lot of wisdom to impart. Like not a lot of, um, you know, no, not, not a path that you would leave for other people to follow. It's just kind of a wild ride with crazy spirits yeah. and like psychic dildos. And then it doesn't really end. Like it ends with Yuri Geller somehow through uh, some nefarious connection through family friends. He gets really sick. Like he gets, it's like, I think it's the, he's 48 now and he's in one of these kind of, kind of later cycles. And um, he says that he gets a phone call from Yuri Geller and Yuri Geller somehow blows up his clock on the wall and then makes him feel better and he's kind of healed and then he's like that's the end of the sevens and now I'm on to the next number I'm like, oh okay don't know what that means but great <laughs> just just fantastic. okay how many ectophalluses out of 10 are you going to give it <laughs> look there were some good stories thrown in there so I'm going to give it seven ectophalluses out of 10 <laughs> that's a, that's I think that's not, not a, bad it's not it's a bad not score bad. it's not bad so I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read it for yourself I'll also link to The Haunted Mind by Nandor Fodor and some of the uh, stories that were mentioned by Brad Steiger and the, uh, mm-hmm. the Mind Travelers as well coming up in our plus extension in a moment we have the secret power of music the transformation of self and society through music Musical Energy by David Tame, this classic from the mid-80s where, again, he asks this fundamental question, is it 
civilization that drives music or is music in fact driving civilization we're going to look at uh, some of the ancient societies we're going to look at the ancient chinese approach how music was the central core of the organizational structure of their society and we're going to look into the west and see how in the 20th century there was a certain revolution in sound and we're going to look at how classical music especially in the west in the 1900s started to radically change from the point where you had you know beautiful orchestras of wonderful stringed instruments and brass and everything else to a guy switching on a jet engine <laughs> meters from your face. So I don't know if, if this is where we're going to go in the plus extension, but I was, I'm intrigued by some of the most, you know, crazy conspiracy theories out there. And the one I've been reading recently was that somewhere around this time, like the early 1900s, there was a secretive group that changed the, the frequency of like, you know, sounds. Oh, the whole 588 or whatever Yeah, and they, yeah. Like, they changed that. And it, we did a show about so. it. No, but it's more than that. The idea was like they changed the frequency of A sharp and B flat and that kind of thing. And in doing so, it basically opened up humanity to spiritual damage and degradation. Yes, I did a show about that. It's in the, it's in the archives. MysteriousUniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. Sign up for MU Max. And you can listen to that show, which Aaron has clearly forgotten about. <laughs> I'm going to sign up and go listen to it. Yeah, that's that's the deal. Sign up for the Plus today, uh, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Nine bucks a month is the uh, the entry level, gets you access to the extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And if you sign up, you get access to the exclusive shows that come out every single Tuesday. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for Plus. You also get a higher quality audio version of the show, uh, so a higher quality MP3. You also get a totally ad-free version of the show as well. And again, if you sign up for the MU Max tier, you get all those years of shows we've been doing with 10 plus years we've been going on this show. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us.